Good morning. Yeah, there we go. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, please join me for the reading of God's word to us this morning. It can be found on page 1219. Just a heads up, a little trick. We are reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to jump to the end of chapter 3 and read verses 14 through 22. So, these are two letters to the churches in Ephesus and Laodicea. Page 1219. This is God's word to us this morning. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then chapter 3, verse 14. The church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If he hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before we jump into our text this morning, I want to cover three quick things. First, I want to give you guys the resources which I will be heavily utilizing these next couple weeks. So I'm going to base my, my um, sermons on three main resources. The first is the resources from Professor Jeff Wyma from Calvin Theological Seminary. Some of you might know that just before coming here, I had gone on a trip to Turkey with Jeff. And we had gone to the location of every one of these churches. So we saw their, well, their ruins or sometimes the cities which are built on top of them. Another resource I'm going to be using are lectures, which are free to you. If you're theologically minded, I encourage you to, to look into them. Uh, RTS uh, gives them for free if you download their app. That's Reformed Theological Seminary by Michael J. Kruger. He's the president, I think, of Charlotte. And then lastly... The resource which I highly recommend is uh, I'm going to use the ESV Study Bible. The ESV Study Bible is fantastic. It gives illustrations and keeps it simple. So I encourage you to look into those three resources if you want to dive deeper. And I mention that because we have a problem. I have five weeks left of my internship and there are seven churches. So I have to either pick Brits or we have to hit two at a time. And we're going to do two at a time for the next three weeks. But there's good news in that. And that is that these seven churches are written in what's called a chiasm, which is a pattern, a chiastic pattern. And so what we're going to see is the churches on the outsides, one and seven are similar, and then two and six are similar, and three and five are similar. And then church number four, Thyatira, is actually the longest letter. And so we're going to slow down and do that one by itself. Although each of these church could be a sermon in and of themselves. And the resources I'm utilizing uh, reference them as that. But one last thing I want to point out, and it's just a, a correction. Because I think we can err when we just grab these texts like this. We can think that... Oh man, Jesus is upset with his church. There's consequences here. There's stern scoldings, right? A spitting out of the mouth and a removing of the lampstand. And I want to reorient us to see how these letters should be seen and in the spirit, right? The fact is, out of these seven churches, five of them are what some commentators have called and what a distant observer might think is sick, they are sick churches. And so that might seem like, oh no, uh, Revelation, which is this apologetic or apocalyptic literature, uses this symbolism, right? And so these seven churches, in one sense, represent all the churches. And then we see that five of the churches are kind of straying, are kind of sick. And so sometimes that can make us think like, oh no, that's bad. But at the same time, Jesus came to the sick, and churches are built off of sinners. So when we see these letters, which are encouraging, 
We shouldn't be surprised that there's good and bad. A church built off of sinners is going to struggle with sin which clings. And so when we see these five churches, I have a mentor who always puts it like this. He says, if you ever find a perfect church, let me know so I can avoid it because they don't want me there. But these churches are churches, and every letter says that and starts out with that, recognizing that they are churches. They are gods. They are in the hand of Jesus. He holds them. And so I want to set that context. I want to point out, too, that Jesus knows each of these churches. That's the common theme at the very start of each of these letters. And he knows them intimately. He walks among them. And he might know them, but as we jump into the text, I'm guessing most of us don't. So I'm going to give us a quick history lesson on at least the cultures of these churches, the, the, the worlds they were in and around, the worlds that they were around, which they struggled to, not, to be in but not of. And we actually know a decent amount, first from these letters, but also from archaeology and from literature, from early church writings. We know a good amount just from history. And so let's explore first the world around Ephesus. See, Ephesus is a church which I'm sure you've all heard of, but you probably don't know many details of. But here's what the city of Ephesus was known for. For starters, it was one of the third or the fourth largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was a port city. It was massive. The equivalent of the Chicago or Houston city today. And even in today's standards, it was pretty large. Most scholars believe that Ephesus was around 250,000 people. That's an, an enormous number, especially for the ancient world. Along with that, Ephesus had this reputation of being a, an important city by reputation. Three times it gained this title title, which in the Roman world was important, this title of Neo-Corinth. What that meant is that it was a city recognized as special or important by Rome. And a lot, of a lot of cities strove to attain this title. Laodicea strove for years to attain it. And Ephesus got it three times. That's important. In fact, we have ruins where they have inscriptions, and they make sure we know three times they were as the equivalent of the city which hosted the Olympics of today, right? Kind of how important they were. It was something of clout. Along with that, it also hosted the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. In fact, I went and saw where the Temple of Artemis stood, and right now they have just one pillar standing there, which they resurrected. It's really nothing to wonder at. Finally, there's one more thing I think which is remarkable about Ephesus, is that it was really well known for its pagan spirituality. Ephesus had a culture which was saturated in pagan mysticism and 
sort of witchcraft and sorcery. And we know this first off by literature, but also uh, they were so well known for this that even today we have records of what we call these Ephesian letters. They were six words which the Ephesians thought had power, power to curse, power to heal, power to protect from demons. It's kind of like this hocus pocus. In fact, I learned that my culture back in Michigan is far closer to this than apparently California is. Because I was going to use the illustration of, in Michigan, we have this saying, if the smoke at a campfire gets in your eyes, you say, I hate white rabbits, I hate white rabbits, I hate white rabbits. And that's supposed to change the smoke so it no longer goes in your eyes. I grew up thinking that was normal. I have found that no one here thinks that's normal. <laughs> but it's funny. And this was, this was really prevalent in Ephesus. So much so, I mean, I'm going to read this quick section which talks about Ephesus from Acts 19. Okay, Acts 19, verse 18. Also, many believers who, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's Ephesus early in Paul's missionary journey. That's probably 40 years before the letter of Revelation to him, right? 40-ish years. 50,000 pieces of silver. If we take the smallest value to of a dollar, $50,000, who's ready to burn that, right? This is the culture that the Ephesian church was around. Facts about the Laodicean church. Laodicea was wealthy. I mean wealthy, like Bezos wealthy. They had a textile industry and a medical school, which was known in the ancient world. And we, we even know how wealthy they were. First off, by these ruins, Laodicea is really well-preserved, and it's currently being excavated. And as you go through this church of this ruins of Laodicea, first off, they're in a valley, and there's no populations there anymore, right? Everyone's kind of moved away. The rivers, which used to serve Laodicea, kind of dried up. But it was in this valley, which was really lush. And so with this wealth, we have these ruins. And quite often, there's at least three significant structures. An aqueduct, the paving of an entire, the entire city, and then I think it was a stadium. And each of these were personally funded by individuals of that city. And they let us know. They say, I paid for it with my own coin. We also know how wealthy they were because... They had water struggles. In the ancient world, water determined the size of a city. But the ancient world was smart, and if you had money, you had aqueducts. Aqueducts were expensive. And for Laodicea, they had one going five miles from the city of Herapolis, bringing in water to their city. What's interestingly, and we'll touch on this later, is that 
the water from Herapolis came from a hot spring. So it came out hot at Herapolis, traveled all the way, and it made it to Laodicea lukewarm. So we got two cities, two cities which have churches in them, Ephesus, a city with a significant reputation, and Laodicea with significant wealth. These are the worlds which these churches live in and are tempted to be of. And both of these churches in these seven letters are on the outside of this chiasm. That means they're similar. And both of them are on the edge, almost as if they're at risk of falling away. You have one that's, the the warning is you'll be spat out. And the other, that your lampstand will be removed. That's scary. They're on the outside and the warnings are strong. The stakes are high and the statements are high stake by Jesus. And I think that they're on the edge of this chiasm for different reasons, but ultimately these different reasons can have one common reason. It's, it's that they've both forgotten Jesus. They've forgotten the fullness of Jesus, of, of the Lord who is both love and truth and compromises neither. Explicitly, we see that Ephesus has forgotten the love of God, the love that they first had. And I think we can see a strong argument that Laodicea has forgotten that they are a church which is built on Christ, the truth, their rock, and their need. But before addressing their problems, I want to point out what I think is literally significant, that before any of the problems are addressed, Jesus introduces himself in such a way that he already solves their problems. That's remarkable. I think it changes the way we receive that. He himself is what they need, and he comes explaining that before he ever reveals it to them. Let's look at the church in Ephesus and how Jesus comes to them. He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, walks among. It's remarkable. We might think, how does that solve their lack of love? But I want to bring our attention to John, 1 John 4. It's the beloved section, right? You know, the God is love section that we always kind of caricature. It answers this absolute need for truth and love, which the Ephesian church has truth. 1 John 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. We, not that we have loved God 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see how the presence of God among already wells up love? That because he loved us and is among us and within us, naturally we love. And so a church without love, how can it be a church? Interestingly, Laodicea is described differently, but in so many ways, the same forgetting of who Jesus is and who Jesus is to them and to you and I is present. Jesus says, I am the words of the, of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, the beginning of God's creation, the beginning of the church and of our faith. We can see that these titles suggest what they need already before the problems are even addressed. But the problems are addressed. So we see Ephesus, a church which is doctrinally sound, which is commended for the fact that they have nothing to do with evildoers, with false teachers, that they keep their standards high, and yet that is not satisfactory satisfactorily enough for Jesus. And he tells them why. Because they do not have love. You know, it's remarkable, or it's interesting that there is a, a faith that already preceded the church, which had striven for perfection. We see them in the Pharisees, the very people who strove for doctrinal purity, who had law after law after law after law seeking righteousness, but they couldn't see the very love of God before them when he came. Jesus finds love important, just as important as truth. He never separates them. Perfect doctrine comes with perfect love. In fact, the end of 1 John 4 says his love is perfected in us. And I think it's remarkable that the correction isn't that they've forgotten, but that they've abandoned his love. And he calls them to repent. The same is for Laodicea. You see this church, this city with all its works, the way we look at it, it seems the church is neglected for its works. Oftentimes we read this hot and cold spitting out of my mouth as their faith was either vibrant, hot, or cold, detached. Like Jesus is saying, like, that's what I want. I want people who are on fire for me or are so cold that that, uh, they're, they're detached and distant. But I don't think that's how we should read it. In fact, scholars have pushed back on that reading. So maybe you've heard it. But I think there's a better way of reading it. You see, Laodicea got its water from that hot spring five miles away. And it came in lukewarm. But you see, no one really wants lukewarm water. Or at least rarely we do. It's not really water that's useful for much. Useful for really anything. You want hot water for medicine. You want hot water for sipping tea when you have a sore throat or something. And you want cold water when you're thirsty. But you don't want lukewarm water. 
And God doesn't want works which aren't built off of Christ. Because to him, as Paul says, they are filthy rags. They're not, they don't meet the bar. They're not good enough. And so this Laodicean church, which is so wealthy, it's interesting, Jesus has no, this is the only church Jesus has no commendation, no good thing he says to them. And I think that's probably because they couldn't take it. Jesus can't honor works which are built for self-righteousness. He can only honor works which are built off him. And you see that in the response. He says, come buy from me gold refined. It's kind of weird. Who would buy gold? And he offers white garments from him. Interestingly, Laodicea had this unique wool. It was black wool that was really sought after. It was valuable and well-known and important. And he contrasts that with white garments from him. These two churches are forgetting and straying. They're on the edge of this chasm, of this chiasm. And it, and it sounds like this might be a warning. And I think it can almost seem like we should take this with with disappointment or fear. But what's remarkable is that these two churches on the outside are almost given the greatest amount of grace from Jesus. I don't think it should be lost on us. It's just so fitting, especially on this communion Sunday, because I didn't plan this, that the two churches that are on the outside of this chiasm at risk of falling away, of being spat out and and being removed from their lampstand, These churches are offered food. Jesus' response to both is some form of communion with them. Verse 7, to the church in Ephesus, I will grant him of the tree of life. Verse 20, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You see how the churches that are at most in danger, the most grace is offered to? And I think that's really what I'd like to lift up the most today, especially since that's what's relevant to us today. See, if you're willing to wrestle with these texts, especially with these seven churches, you'll see that these seven churches represent all of the church, But at the same time, you'll find a bit of each of these churches in your own heart. I know for myself, I have found a bit of that Ephesian heart, that legalism that struggles to love, that Laodicean heart which thinks I'm a good person, I'm a good parent, father, citizen, pastor, preacher, person. And yet, neither of these churches are perfect. And they are, they're at, the stakes are high. And yet, Jesus speaks to them, even as they are messing up and compromising with their churches, their cultures, and settling for things which are not. Jesus invites them to eat and to feast with him. 
and to the church which is threatened or at risk of being removed from the lampstand, he offers them the tree of life. And the tree of life is this most immovable object, right? And to the Laodicean church, the church which is not building off of Christ, but rather off of their own reputation, he offers them at the end to rule with him, to sit on his throne with him. This morning, I don't know if you'll find yourself closer to a Laodicean church on this side or a Ephesian church on this side or maybe closer to the apostles' response. You see, the very first communion was offered to those who later that day fled when the shepherd was struck. But to each Communion is offered to each Jesus gives us opportunity to take and to receive, to be strengthened for the task ahead, to be conquerors. And each of these churches in the weeks ahead, we're going to see, are called conquerors, conquerors with Christ. So this morning, as we prepare for communion I invite you wherever you are to to see that communion is offered to you not because of who you are and what you've done, the love which is in you or of you, but rather the love which is given to you. I invite you to come and taste in a few minutes what is the victory already accomplished and coming. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the words to the church 2,000 years ago are just as relevant and just as necessary to us today. Lord, that we are your sheep because you have chosen us. That we receive salvation, not because of good works which we do, but because of good works which your Son has done on the cross by which he has paid for our sins and now offers us living bread, bread of life and living water. Lord, I just pray that our hearts would overflow with the love that comes from you and that our eyes and our minds and our spirits would know the truth that is in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.